Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Madhuvataratayate Madhuksharanti Sindhavaha Madhvihirna Santoshadihi Madhu Naktan Mutoshasi Madhu Madhpartiva Gumrajaha Madhu Dyarastanaf Pita Madhu Manovanaspatir Madhu Madhastusuryaha Madhvirgavo Bhavantunaha Om Madhu 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 Om Sweet blow the winds, and the very oceans bring forth blessedness. May the herbs and plants bring us health and happiness. And may the sweet unto us be the nights and dawns. May every particle of Mother Earth be charged with blessing, and may the heavens shower us with benediction. Sweet unto us be the noble forest trees. Sweet unto us be the radiant sun. Sweet unto us be all living creation. Om sweetness, harmony, peace. That seemed particularly appropriate before the election, so let's all chill out now. It'll all be okay in the big picture. I'm speaking today on Sister Nevedita, what we can learn from Sister Nevedita, which you will not understand what a huge irony that is for me, because for years I resisted Sister Nevedita. Because of her, I'm so superficial, her prose made me crazy. It was sort of this pre-Raphaelite Victorian English, which is for me sort of like, you know, eating a lot of icing. Uh, And and so I resisted it. And our our friend Amrita had said very, um, not very intelligently, said to Swami Swahana that she couldn't stand reading Sister Nevedita, at which he clenched his jaw and said, you will read her until you like her. (laughs) and I said to her better you than me (laughs) which just goes to show how totally stupid I was because the more I've been reading about her the more I've studied her and what really got me into her were her letters which are absolute page turners Uh, the more I appreciated what an enormous figure she was what a great woman she has and I've uh, a genuine veneration for this woman what an extraordinary extraordinary human being, one human being doing as much as she did. So in India, she's a huge figure. Uh, there's postage stamps of Sister Nevedita. There are, you know, there are bridges named after her. There are, you know, statues of her. So she's a very well-known figure, but she's really not very well-known over here, which is a real pity because she was a genuine world mover. She did an incredible amount in that short life. Well, who was she? She was an Irish disciple of Swami Vivekananda, a very fiery Irish woman who um, got into Vedanta. Um, She gave her life to India, and she gave her life for the uplift of women everywhere, and she gave her life to spreading the message of Vedanta around the world. She made an enormous contribution to women's education in India, to spreading Vedanta worldwide, and she single-handedly, one woman, she single-handedly brought about a resurgence of Indian science, Indian culture, an appreciation for Indian history, 
and the revolutionary and independence movement in India. One little fiery Irish woman. It's quite, she literally took India and pushed her in a different direction towards freedom and independence. One woman. What she did was unthinkably amazing. One woman with a sense of dedication. Her literary output alone is astonishing. She has five volumes of her regular prose writing, plus two volumes of nine-point prose of her letters, and they've just found yet another volume of her letters. I swear to God that woman never slept. She wrote 803 letters to Josephine McLeod alone. It's like, are you kidding me? And they're all interesting. They're all fascinating because in these letters, you find so many inner glimpses into Swami Vivekananda, into Ramakrishna, into Sarada Devi, in the early history of the Ramakrishna order, plus all the inside scoop of these cultural leaders, these political people, the revolutionaries. Uh, she knew everybody. And you get sort of like an inner look, an inner look at all these things. It's like, wow, this is really great. I mean, I literally can't wait until we get the third volume of her, of her letters. They're so interesting. She was greatly loved by her guru, Swami Vivekananda. And she was greatly loved by Holy Mother, Sarada Devi, as well as all the direct disciples of Ramakrishna. And it kind of leaves us astonished, the amount of work she was able to do in so many levels, in so many areas. One woman, uh, interesting, Sarda Devi, Ramakrishna's consort, Holy Mother, said, was Nevedita an ordinary woman? No, she was a Devi. She was like a goddess. Now, when Holy Mother says something like that, you've got to like, okay, I'll, I'll get over my problem with Victorian English. So the more we read her, the more we read her writings, her letters, what her contemporaries say about her, the more we see what a bright light she was what a leader she was, and what a light she continues to be for us now. Truly, what a, a light she continues to be for us now. She gave herself to her work totally and unstintingly, 100% of the time, and in doing so, that woman literally changed the world. One human being. Which gives us pause about what any human being, including us, can do. She was also pretty impossible to live with. Uh, like many extraordinary people, she was a combination of two equal and opposing forces. On the one hand, she was extraordinarily generous and kind and giving, tender, selfless, loving. And on the other hand, she was arrogant, she was argumentative, she was domineering, and she was aggressive. Swami Prabhavananda loved to tell a story about how he had met Sister Nevedita and she looked at him and, and he, was, he, he was a handsome young man before he became a monk and he had his hair parted and she said, you look like a dandy, you're a dandy. Swami, Swamiji did not like dandies, end of conversation. <laughs> but he loved it, he loved to hear her talk, you know, hearing the, hearing the accent was just totally beguiling for him. She was, and, but she was able to use both parts of this, her personality to work for, for doing immense good to the world. Every part of her impossible personality, she was able to turn towards the good. And all that gentleness, all that love, became the mother of so many hundreds of thousands of people, including the entire subcontinent, which became her own child. She was charismatic. 
She knew everybody and everybody knew her in England. She was on close terms with George Bernard Shaw, with Yates, with Julian Huxley. In England, she knew all the freedom fighters, all the revolutionaries, including Gandhi and Aurobindo. And she was close friends with Lady Minto, the wife of the British Viceroy. She knew everybody. And she felt comfortable enough to be able to go to him and say, that needs to be changed. Look what you're doing over there. And it had its effect. Rabindranath Tagore, the great Bengali poet and lyricist who received the Nobel Prize long before Bob Dylan ever did, <laughs> knew her well. And he said that he, was, he had the opportunity to be close to her, but he kind of held back because he was afraid of being totally overwhelmed by her. On the other hand, he said, no one has ever shown me such generosity or kindness in my life. No one but her. And he said, I have drawn strength from her strength. And I've used my veneration for her to propel me forward. Now that from a man like Rabindranath Tagore, who was a spiritual giant in his own right. He said, those who knew her saw the extent to which a human being could exemplify truth and consciousness. Now, I don't know what it means to exemplify consciousness, that kind of, what? But the ideal of one human being exemplifying truth now, that's really quite amazing. How many of us even want in our lifetime to exemplify truth? Sri Ramakrishna said that truth was the austerity of the age, that if anyone could follow truthfulness completely in thought, word, and deed, that that person would attain the highest spiritual goal. And for a human being in their life to exemplify truth, that really takes some work. And that is a great lesson that we can learn from Sister Nivedita. She simply made a point of doing so through her sheer power of will. That's amazing. Rabindranath Tagore said that Nivedita's life was one from which other people benefited. Interesting. Other people benefited from her life. And he said she decided to submit herself to the high ideal of giving, just giving, and without any consideration of her own fear, hesitation, comfort, or zeal. Now, in 21st century America, we think, wow, that's kind of masochistic, you know? We have pills for that. <laughs> we can help. That's not very healthy, you know? We have these Lexis, and we have the Xanax, and all this stuff that's going to help you kind of overcome this problem in your life. But Swami Vivekananda understood the greatness of a person who was able to suppress to keep down their own needs and desires for the sake of a greater ideal, and to use that to totally give in a way that seems impossible to us today. But in so doing, was able to change the world. She changed herself, and she changed the world. So 150 years after her birth, because this is now her 150th anniversary, we, you know, we, we continue to draw strength from her strength. And we can get inspiration from her, from this extraordinary woman. And what was particularly inspiring for me is the enormous courage this woman had and her ability to say, no, I'm not satisfied with anything that you are trying to shove down my throat. She refused to compromise her ideals. And she refused to accept what the rest of the world said you just well, bloody well ought to accept. You ought to be content with this. 
you ought to be content with this little life that everyone else in your, in your, in your little group there should be. They're all content. You damn well better be content yourself. You are a 19th century Irish woman. You just stay here and stay in your place. And she said, nothing doing. She wasn't about to stay in England and lead a little life where she could intellectualize about religion and she could intellectualize about serving humanity. She was going to throw herself in the middle of it. Come whatever happened. She was going to throw herself into it. She refused to be content with what the world told her she was supposed to be content with. And that is another great lesson for us all to learn, to never compromise our ideals, to never, com to never let go of the, these goals, to never compromise the ideals that we hold for ourselves. If we hold on to them, the world makes way for us. She wasn't about to do that. Now, I'll give a quick biography, just you know, a few details. But I think much more important than, than the bare bones details of her life are simply what we can learn from that amazing life of hers. Because I think we can all learn from her life, not only as, as followers of Vedanta, not only as followers of the Hindu tradition, but as simple human beings. Just as human beings, what we can learn from a life like hers. It's, it's, it's an amazing life. So she was born in Ireland in 1867, and her name was Margaret Elizabeth Noble. She was both the daughter and the granddaughter of Irish Protestant ministers, and she had a very strict upbringing, a very poor upbringing. It was the last place you'd think to find a woman like her in India, right? Very strict upbringing, and she was very close to her father. And he doted on her, and she doted on him. Her mother was a bit of a tough cookie. So she, she was close to her father, and he died at the age of 10, when she was 10. And it was a great blow to her. The family was poor, and uh, she went to a boarding school in England. And there she fell in love. She was, went because she was going to study. She wanted to be a teacher, and she was. She was an excellent teacher. She was sort of born to educate others. So she became a teacher, and she fell in love with a, a Welsh engineer. But he got sick, and he died even before their engagement could be made public. It broke her heart. And she learned at a very young age that life could be very unstable and it could be very short. You never knew. You never knew when the, when the page was going to turn. So by her 20s, she started, um, she started questioning her earlier strict Christian background. She started studying Buddhism, and that sort of intrigued her. She also became an ardent feminist, which didn't intrigue other people. They just found it irritating. And she also became a great political activist. She was very active in, in fighting for, for home rule in Ireland. But she was living in London, and she was doing all the intellectual things, going to all the talks, doing all the things. And she was, you know, being this high intellectual argumentative woman. And so in 1895, she went to a lecture given by one Swami Vivekananda. And she wasn't particularly impressed. She said, oh, I've heard this kind of thing before. She also said later that he spoke above her level. But um, it intrigued her a bit. She didn't know in 1895 that it had already made this huge impression at the Parliament of Religions in Chicago that he was like, the, it really changed America, how uh, one Hindu monk, which sort of changed the way Americans started thinking about uh, spirituality. 
She didn't know that when he got back in India, he was lionized. There were people falling over each other, wanting to, to see him, wanting to have a glimpse of him, trying to, uh, taking the, the horse's art from a cart and, and dragging a chariot of him through the street. She didn't know any of that, nor would she would have cared. She would have cared less. It's like, all right, I don't, you, you find something. I, I think I've heard all this before. But she was intrigued. So the next week she came back, and that got her. Because he said in his lecture that it was nothing about belief. It was nothing about any sort of religious tenets. It was our own personal experience. That got her. The idea that it's our own personal experience of the divine, not for other people, but for every one of us as our human birthright. This is what he talked about. And she said, now that, that means something to me. That it isn't for other people. I don't have to believe something. It's my own personal experience of the divine, and that is my birthright as a human being. That stuck with her. So he left, Vivekananda left, and he didn't come back until the next spring into London, and she was ready. She attended every one of his lectures, every one of his classes. And then she wrote him a letter, and she asked questions in, in the classes and lectures. And she asked, and she wrote him letters, which asked him questions. And this is another lesson that we learned from Nevedita. Because we can all ask questions, but we have to ask ourselves the motivation. What, what, what kind of question are we asking? And what is my question? She knew how to ask the right questions. So it's a very important thing to look deep in ourselves and ask the right question. Basically, she wrote a letter to Vivekananda that asked him just about the best question ever, and that was basically, it's, what is your ideal? Now, how many of us have even thought about asking someone, what is your ideal? But she wrote him that, and he wrote her one of the most beautiful letters ever. He said, my ideal can be put into a few words, and that is to preach unto mankind their divinity and how to make it manifest in every movement of life. He said, one idea I see as clear as daylight is that misery is caused by spiritual ignorance and nothing else. Misery is caused by spiritual ignorance and nothing else. He said, who will give the world light? The world is in need of those whose life is one burning love selfless. And he said, that word will make every word you tell like a thunderbolt. And he told her, you have within you the making of a world mover. He said, let us call and call until the sleeping gods awake, till the God within answers the call. And she said, sign me up. You sign me up. And that's another lesson. That when we hear the call of truth, we say, sign me up. I'm here. Teach me. We don't shilly-shally. We don't dilly-dally. We don't idle our time away. We don't idle our life away. We say, sign me up. Sign me up. I'm ready. Teach me. To be able to say, that is the truth. Sign me up. That's a wonderful lesson. Vivekananda wanted her to teach and educate the women of India because he knew that until the women were educated, no progress could be made on any level. Until the women were educated, nothing good could happen. So he gave her that great task to educate the women 
And he knew, he said, what India needs is a real lioness. And that, I, I can see, is, is your work. But at the same time, he tried to dissuade her because he knew how terrible it was going to be. And that's another thing we learned from Nivedita. She had the power of Shraddha. Shraddha is a, a bit hard to translate, but it means faith in oneself, faith in the guru, faith in God, faith in the scriptures. And it's not just this little nabby-pamby faith. It's like faith, strength. It's like the strength that you get in your bone marrow, the strength that you get when you're a mom and you see the baby in the lion's mouth. It's like, mom, I'm going to kill you. That kind of strength that you know that you can turn mountains into dust with your bare teeth. That is Shraddha. And that's what she had. And that's what we can learn from her, is to have all of us possess this. We simply don't access it. We have to access that kind of Shraddha, that incredible faith in ourselves, that faith in the Guru, the faith in the scriptures, the faith that we ourselves can realize the truth. And that's what she had. That she could realize the truth that she knew that she had the power to do what Vivekananda wanted her to do, even though the world, 99.99999% of the world said was impossible, particularly for her, a white Irish woman in India? Forget it. Forget it. She knew she could. She took up the word with work with gusto and with pride because it was Swamiji's work. She knew she could do it. Swamiji warned her. He tried to, to, to say, you know, you think twice, you think 5,000 times before you do this because everything is going to work against you. You think they're going to want you? Wrong. They don't. He said, the climate is going to make you sick. The poverty is going to make you sick. The very people you are coming to help are going to hate you for the color of your skin. As soon as you leave their house, they're going to get out the Ganges water to purify the dirt you stood in. They can hardly wait to see your backside. You are going to have a hard time. But that didn't deter. He said, the British are going to misunderstand you, and the Indians are going to misunderstand you, and you're going to be sick. And you are stuck in the most miserable climate in the world. If you don't do this, I will not think the less of you. And she would not be deterred. Nothing deterred her. She had the shraddha that made her know that this was what she had to do, and she, by damn, she was going to do it. He warned her that her sacrifices would be endless, and they were. But he wrote in the same letter, on my part, I promise to stand by you unto death. Whether you work for India or not, whether you keep up Vedanta or give it up, I promise to stand by you unto death. So she was like, Okay, sign me up. So by 1898, she'd showed up in India. She'd arrived. And um, he initiated her into Brahmacharya, which are our first monastic vows. And he gave her the name Nivedita, which means the dedicated. Never a better name was given to anybody. The dedicated Nivedita. So interestingly, Vivekananda was in no hurry to send her out to do his work for the women. And she was like, okay, let, let's get, I'm here to do your work. And he was like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. So for at least a year, he wouldn't send her anywhere. But instead, he taught her every morning, every morning. He taught her, and when the other Western women, Josie McLeod and Mrs. Holy Bull, Sarah Bull, were there, he would teach them all together. 
and he would go over and over and talk to them informally about Indian culture, Indian history, Indian values, Indian mythology, Indian habits of thought, everything Hindu values. He had to kind of make her, she had to make herself like a sponge to absorb everything he was trying to pour into her. He taught her endlessly, and that was necessary. Otherwise, she would go on with her own preconceived British ideas about how she was going to help the people, and she was going to shove her ideas down their bloody throats, whether they liked it or not. And she would turn bitter, and they would turn bitter. So she, he had to make her as one of India. She had to make herself like one of India. She had to totally reorient her whole mind. She had to stop saluting the British flag and thinking that whatever they did was the best for the world. She had to think from the ground up, living with the Indians. And it was, it was, and it was hard because she was not an easy person to teach. She had to learn Indian values and ideals because unless you love the very people you want to teach, unless you have, share their values, unless you share their ideals, you have no hope of being able to be on the same level with them. And then how can you teach unless you love? And how can you love unless you really understand? It's impossible. Vivekananda said to her, quite tellingly, Western people, this is all going to sound a little familiar to you, and you're going to get an ouch moment. Western people do have the peculiarity of trying to force upon others what seems good to them. Sound familiar? As such, I'm afraid you might try to force upon others whatever turn your mind might take. That's generally what we tend to think, you know. Works for me, it should work for everybody else, right? Doesn't, doesn't. So Vivekananda invested a huge amount of time and energy and love into her. And he was tough on her, as he very well needed to be because she was arrogant, she was proud, she was um, bullheaded, and quite often enough resistant to being taught. Because that's the problem with being so smart, you think you know everything. He had to kind of, you know, kind of break down the concrete. And in fact, it got so hard at one point that her friend Josephine McLeod tried to intervene. She was afraid that Nevada would kind of crack under the impact of Vivekananda's constant scolding. And he said to her, do not spoil her. I have put more energy into her than anyone else. Now, when we think who else he was training, like all his disciples, who kind of formed the backbone of the Ramakrishna order, who he was training was also all the other disciples of Ramakrishna, plus all these other people all around the world that he was training, he put more time into her than anybody else, that really gives you pause. Oh, why? Why? Because she was doing Ramakrishna's work of bringing Vedanta to the Western world, of elevating the women everywhere, of one woman single-handedly bringing about a resurgence of Indian science and culture and pride that hadn't been there. So after this terrific training was over, she moved into Bhagbasar, the Indian quarter of Calcutta, which was very hard. Even by, for Western standards, it was unbearable. Even by Indian standards, it was pretty tough. It was, there was no escape from the wretched heat of those Calcutta summers. And in the winter, in, in, I'm sorry, in the rainy season, she'd have to use umbrella in her own house to get up to the second floor. I mean, it was tough. 
there was she was living with the Indian people as an Indian, and if as if the place and the climate and the situation weren't bad enough, she had a problem with her itty bitty girls' school, which was it was just a tiny little school in the own place that she was living, and the Indians didn't want to send their kids there. It was tough. She she uh, no one wanted to send their kids to this this white woman. They were afraid that she was going to try to do something. They would try to convert her to a British way of thinking be part of the colonial mission. Holy Mother Sarda Devi said this about Nevedita. She said, look at Nevedita, a Western girl who came to our country and worked happily, forbearing insults and enduring so much discomfort. I mean, I can't imagine what it was like. She tried to educate our children. When she visited some homes to register their children for school, she was humiliated. Some wouldn't allow them into the house, and some allowed her to go inside, but when they left, she, they got out the Ganges water. Holy Mother said she saw everything, but she did not mind. She left each place with a smiling face. Now, how many of us could do that? How many of us could face that sort of, uh, you know, I'm coming here to help you. By the way, I'm going to slam the door in your face. By the way, the very ground you're standing on is impure, so I'm going to get out the Ganges water. I mean, how many of us could be genuinely happy? for that opportunity to serve. What an extraordinary woman. What a karma yogi. What a woman who knows how to serve. It's, it's really quite amazing. She was totally egoless in this. When plague brought up, brought, uh, broke out in Calcutta, people left the city in droves. And, and she went out and started nursing the people, the, the victims of the plague. And she realized that you can't just go patient to patient. Every chance you're just going to die yourself of the plague. What she did was get to the root of the plague, which is why by going herself into the streets and cleaning up the streets herself. If you've ever been to Calcutta, you know it's in those streets. And she was in there cleaning it herself with her hands. And by that point, the neighbors, the neighbor boys became ashamed and started serving and started helping her. That turned the tide. Her work grew. More and more children started going to the school. She was in her area, started expanding of the type of work that she was doing just to serve the people in India. And that's why her name is Nevedita. That kind of, our lesson from her is how to have that kind of dedication because she gave herself totally, unstintingly, under any condition, 100% of the time without exception. She didn't say, this is a bad day for me. I'm not feeling well. You know what? It's hot out there. You know what? I don't feel that great. 100% of the time without question, without reservation. And in doing so, she literally changed the world. And she left a place with a smiling face. That means to give yourself like that means finding joy within yourself. That is real dedication. And we can do the same. Every one of us can do the same. Not all of us are world movers like Nevedita, nor should we be. But, you know, we each have a role to play in this world. Every one of us has our own unique role to play in the world. And if we do it with that much sincerity and that much shraddha, we can make our own life a blessing, not only to ourselves, but to the world. We all have the capability of that kind of dedication. And that is another great lesson from Nevedita. Nevedita was a powerful speaker, 
And she ended up becoming like the voice of Vedanta, the voice of the Hindu tradition in India and in the West. Now, kind of, kind of step back here and see how far this woman has gone. Remember, okay, the daughter and granddaughter of Irish Protestant, very conservative ministers, a woman who was like saluting the Union Jack, who believed that whatever the British did was for the good of the, of the world, without question. She was like this very, you know, I'm going to change this, I'm going to do that. And to become a devotee of Kali, she began, she developed a profound devotion to the goddess Kali. So she gave a very famous talk in Albert Hall in Calcutta on Kali. Now, you've got to remember that this not only shocked the pants off the British, it shocked the pants out of the Hindus. Because the Hindu elite, the educated Hindus, were deeply embarrassed about Kali. It's like, oh, we don't know anything about that. We don't know anything about that. They were trying so hard to emulate the British and try to be like proto-Protestants that they said, oh, this is just the, the, the uneducated, the masses who would do that from the lower instincts. They had no way. And here we have a highly educated British educationalist who is coming over and speaking the glories of Kali. I mean, this really raised an uproar both with the Hindus and with the British. And she loved it. It, you know, it, it, if it seems strange to us now in 2016 to worship a black goddess, imagine what it was like in the 1890s. A British woman, imagine her friends, imagine her family. Imagine what they were saying back home. Oh my God, this woman has so gone native, it's scary. Um, I want to quote something from this wonderful new novel that I'm reading. It's a, a book by uh, Nicola Barker who's a uh, originally South African British woman who's already been nominated several times for the Man Booker Award. So she's written this book called The Cauliflower about Ramakrishna, taken from the viewpoint of his nephew, Hridoy. It's an absolute, irreverent, joyful, loving take on Ramakrishna. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Anyway, in there, she gives this kind of straight-on view of what Kali would be to someone who has no idea about Kali, right? So she has some slightly impertinent questions about Ma Kali. Again, I'm quoting Nicola Barker. One, why on earth is she spitting out her tongue like that? The statue of Kali, she's going like this. She's standing on Shiva, right? Two, she appears to be resting her foot on the chest of a prostrated pale-skinned man, who is Shiva. Who is he? Is he dead? Has she killed him? Three, hang on a second. Is she stark naked? Four, she looks rather tipsy. Is she drunk? Five, is that a necklace of human skulls around her head? Six, is my mind playing tricks on me or is she actually wearing some kind of uh, a weird skirt made out of severed human arms? Seven, is she black? Eight, why? Is her hair such a dreadful mess? And it goes on in this vein for a while, but you can see this is exactly looking at a, a, the image of Kali, you're going to go, What? You're worshiping that? Swami Swahanada faced the same question when we were at UCSB and they had a, a seminar on the goddess. And one young student said to him, Swami, how can you worship goddess like that? She seems so scary. 
And Swami Swahananda said, what? Do you want a namby-pamby mother or do you want someone to protect you? Right. <laughs> mother Kali. So you know, all these things about, uh, about what she writes about Kali are actually quite true. That's what the iconography is. Of course, Shiva is not dead apart from that. But many Hindu apologists were deeply embarrassed because they didn't get Kali. But Nevedita did. Nevedita really got Kali. She was a real worshiper of Kali. And for Nevedita, what was so beautiful is she understood that Kali was the paradox of ultimates. She was the absolute loving mother. And at the same time, she was a representation of the world as we know it. She is the world as we experience it. She said, no betrayal of truth. Remember her, this is her thing. No betrayal of truth is so terrible as that of choosing what is beautiful and easy and soft to be believed and worshipped. Let us face also just as willingly the terrible, the ugly, the hard. I mean, has anyone here not experienced the terrible, the ugly, and the hard? I mean, if you, if no one, if someone here has not experienced that, raise your hand because I really do want to meet you. But that's not our experience of the world, is it? Our experience of the world is that it really is and can be and often to our surprise is terrible and ugly and often very hard. And this is what we're learning about the world. Because how can we say that God is the loving father when we know that bad things happen to good people? Is God powerless or is he just doesn't care? What are we going to do with that? That's always the conundrum, isn't it? What we know is that the universe comes in pairs of opposites. For every birth, there is a death. For every joy, there is sorrow. For every pleasure, there is going to be pain. And for every triumph, there is going to be a defeat. And for every bit of praise we get, there's going to be an equal amount of blame. If it hasn't happened yet, just get ready. This is the world as we experience it. And what Kali teaches us is to go beyond the pairs of opposites, to go beyond that, because that's not our real identity. Our real identity is beyond these pairs of opposites. Our identity is the one with absolute bliss, absolute one with infinite consciousness and joy with infinite light and purity. That's who we are. We're not down there just experiencing these in infinite, innumerable pairs of opposites. That's what we learned from Kali. So this is another thing that we learned from Nevedita, Jai Kali. Jai Kali. And we learned from her what we didn't hear from anybody else, which is Swami Vivekananda's own experience of Kali. It's very intimate. And we find this in her letters he told her personally when she and Vivekananda and Sarah Bull and um, Josephine McLeod were up in the Himalayas together. And he told her some very intimate personal things that we hear nowhere else. He said to her, Vivekananda, how I used to hate Kali and all her ways. That was my six years fight with Ramakrishna because I would not accept Kali. And Nevedita says to him, but, but you now have accepted her quite specially, have you not, Swami? He said, I had to. 
Ramakrishna dedicated me to her. And you know, I believe she guides me in every little thing I do and just does with and and just does what she likes with me yet i fought so long he said i love the man you see that's ramakrishna i love the man and that held me i thought him the purest man i'd ever seen and i knew that he loved me as my own father and mother had not the power to do how sweet how sweet she said well Swamiji, did you love him because of his greatness? He said, his greatness hadn't dawned on me. I, she, he said, I thought him just a brain-sick baby, always having visions and these things. He said, I hated it. He said, and then I had to accept Kali too. She said, well, won't you say what made you accept Kali? He said, nope, that will die with me. That will die with me. He said, I had great misfortunes. My father died. And she made a slave of me. And Ramakrishna made me over to her. Nowhere else do we get these amazing revealing words as Navedita. We get this kind of glimpse behind the veil. The Swamiji, who's this great teacher of Advaita, strength and purity and all oneness. And here he is an ardent devotee of Mother Kali. And it's she who makes him do everything that he does. When Vivekananda died in 1902, everybody was deeply just fell into grief and of course she did too they were so close and she still kept her powerful spiritual roots there at the ramakrishna order but she came more and more politically involved more involved with the freedom fighters more involved with the revolutionaries and because of that she had to sever her official connection with the ramakrishna order because it would throw all of the monks into jail they would have put everybody in jail even though uh, but at, what actually happened, of course, that the monks were with her all the time. They protected her. Whenever she went, they accompanied her simply to protect her. So she became more and more involved in, with Indian politics. She knew all the revolutionaries. She was highly involved in, in, in the freedom movement for India. She became more and more involved in India's culture and art. They were all trying to imitate the British and the European way of doing things, both in their art in their music, and she's, oh my God, you have your own music, you have your own art, you have your own science. She wrote with Jagadish Chandrabose five books, which made him become Sir Jagadish Chandrabose. She wrote five books for him. She did so much getting all these artists, their own in returning to the indigenous Indian culture. To be, so they can be proud of their own history, of their own culture, of their own religious roots. Don't try to imitate them. You are great. And it, it didn't become you are great. We are great. We are great. She stopped thinking of herself as a European. Her work increased. Her little tiny house in Bagmasar was filled at all times with not only the children she was trying to educate, but with artists, with writers, with revolutionaries, with freedom fighters. There was a famine going on, and she was giving her own food to the starving. She got probably no sleep. She'd always, you know, always shared with others, but at that point she stopped doing anything. She stopped eating. She just gave her food to the people who were literally starving around her. By 1911, she became increasingly ill and increasingly sick. So Jagadish Chandrabose and his wife felt, you know, we've got to get her out of here. Let's, let's take her for a change of air up to Darjeeling. 
and there she contracted blood dysentery, which was universally fatal. And she knew that the end had come. Everybody knew that the end had come. And she was in deep peace. She was in profound peace. Now we have to realize that at that point of her life, she thought that everything that she'd ever worked towards had completely fallen apart because she had the little girl's school just before she'd gone to Darjeeling, her little school, both her, her two assistants there, Sister uh, Christine and Sister Sudira had left her. She was completely alone. She was impossible to live with, but imagine trying to live in that situation where it was completely crowded with revolutionaries, freedom fighters, all the artists, in this tiny little place. They said, can't do it anymore. And they both left and became teachers at the Brahmo Samaj. Nevedita begged Sudira to come back. She said, nothing doing, I can't take it. She had to close the girls' school. The one thing that Vivekananda asked her to do, she had to give up. She had to close the school. All the freedom fighters that she was with, all the revolutionaries, by the time of 1911, everyone she knew was either exiled or dead, hanged, or in jail. The people that she loved the most, except for Josephine McLeod, had died as well. Vivekananda had died. Her close friend Sarah Bull had died. Her friend Sarupananda, who had taught her Sanskrit and Bengali, and who was her dear friend, had died. Finally, two days before she died, Sadananda, her great friend and protector who went everywhere with her, he died. And they were all very young when they died. And she was alone. And she goes up to Darjeeling. And by the way, you got blood dysentery. This is it. And she was in complete peace. She was totally willing to let it all go. Now, you don't get that without a very deep spiritual life. Nevedita had an extraordinary public life, a life that none of us can even imagine how public that was. But her life was fueled by the part of her life that wasn't public, by her intense spiritual life, the life of her that her guru gave her, the life of meditation, the life of her mantra. That was what kept her going and allowed her to have that profound peace at the end of her life. What was amazing was that just before she died, she wrote, I'm thinking more and more that death means a withdrawal into meditation, the sinking of a stone into the well of its own being. I wonder if it's possible to resolve one whole life into love and blessing and to know oneself only as a presence of peace and benediction for the need and suffering of the world. And from this, from a woman who was such a tough cookie, she just wanted to be a love and a blessing for the world, for all the suffering of those. When she died, Mother, Holy Mother wept. She said, all creatures weep for such a great soul. Now part of her being an ideal karma yogi, which she was, was her ability to take the long view, to be able to get that much detachment, to pull back and to see the big picture, takes an enormous amount of detachment, and she had that. She wrote this incredibly prophetic letter to Josephine McLeod. She said, you see, when we who remember Swamiji and understood him are dead, there will come a long period of obscurity and silence for the work that he did. 
It will seem to have been forgotten until 150 or 200 years later, it will be found to have transformed the West. Now, for those of us born and raised here, especially for those of us of a certain age, we know how true these words are. This is not the same mental world, the same not the mental country that we were born into. It's a very different world. We can see how astonishing her vision was. We can also only be grateful for the work that she did and for the lessons that we continue to learn from her. Thank you. And we will conclude with a chant. And if you know this one, please join me. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamataya Purnameva Vashishate Om Shanti 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 Om, filled with Brahman are the things we see, filled with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman flows all that is, from out of Brahman flows all yet, is Brahman still the same? Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.